as we start looking at the text, I want to point out to you that every Christian encounters the conflict between religion and relationship. Religion is embodied in the paradigm, the mental lenses, the ideas that are initially expressed to us about God that form religiosity. And depending on your background, your culture, these ideas can vary greatly. And what religion does is it serves as an entry point. Just understanding the existence of God is a paradigm. And then understanding which way to approach that God, what rules to follow, what, what's the manual for. All of that's a paradigm. It's a way of thinking. It's an approach. And there's, there's many in the room right now. Any former Catholics, you grew up Catholic, raise your hand. My God, look at all the Catholics. Catholicism is a paradigm. It's an ideology. It's, a, it's an approach. It's a way of viewing God. How about any Methodist? You grew up Methodist? Anybody Methodist in the house? Got some Methodist in the house. One in each, well, not that section. Any Pentecostal, Kojic, Apostolic? Yeah, I've got a few of those in here. Any Lutherans in the house? Grew up Lutheran? Amen. God bless you. Any Lutherans in the house? Any Latter-day Saints? Thank God. Amen. <laughs> Keep your bicycle off my street. <clears throat> any, uh, any, any, like, real nice, prim, proper Presbyterians? Any Presbyterians? Oh, yeah, we got some Presbyterians in the house. Amen. All of these things, they're just, they're paradigms. They're lenses. They're, they're, they're ideas of a way to approach God. And that's religion. And uh, somewhere in the midst of embracing religion, it's God's divine will that we evolve from religion into a relationship with the living God. Because religion without relationship is dangerous. Religion without relationship is what caused all those people in Waco several years ago to drink that Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. That was religion without a relationship. Religion without relationship turns into a cult. Religion without a relationship is what caused those young men to hijack planes and fly them into the World Trade Center on 9-11. And they were very committed to their religion, more committed than any Christian that I've seen. You know, Christians hardly give their tithe. You know, these people gave their lives, you know, and they were committed. They, they embraced this religion, this ideology that if they flew those planes into those towers, they thought they was going to wake up to 70 virgins in a paradise. And they gave their life for it. Why? Because their mind was darkened. They were turned into absolute fools by embracing and holding tightly to a religion and never evolving into a relationship with the living God. And there's constant conflict between the lessons that we have been taught about God and what has been revealed to us. Because religion only gives you information, but relationship gives you revelation. I'm going to say it again because you need to hear it. All religion can give you is information, but a relationship can give you revelation of the true and living God. And God uses certain things we've been taught to reveal himself to us with the ultimate goal that through the lessons, we would embrace him, not embrace the lessons themselves. Did you get that? He, he leads us along. He allows us to be exposed to religion in the hopes that the religion will lead us to a door, but then we would open the door and pursue relationship. Not bow down and worship the door. But that's what so many people have done. That's what so many people continue to do. That's what you may be doing. Religion without relationship is dangerous. And in our text that we just read, Jesus, God manifested in the flesh. Jesus. The book of John says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And it was that word that created all things. 
And then he says in verse 14 of John chapter 1 that that word that created all things in the beginning was made flesh in the form of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. And Jesus is invited to dinner by a Pharisee. A Pharisee was a law professor. Not just legalities of society, but he was a professor of the law of Moses, a master theologian. Pastor John, I was reading this statistic. They said, it's hard to believe, over 30% of the theology professors that are teaching in colleges in the nation, over 30% of them are non-believers. They're masters of the text. They're masters of the religion. They have no relationship with God. Simon the Pharisee was was like this. He was a master of the law, but no relationship with God. In verse 36, it says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Understand as we develop the text that there was no separation between church and state, church and government at the time. So the leaders of the church were also the leaders of the government. So Simon is a religious man. He's an affluent man. He's a powerful man. He's a respected man. And sure, because of his standing in the society, sure, he was able to lasso Jesus and grab Jesus and say, hey, I want you to come eat dinner at my house. Now, don't think for a second that Simon hasn't played out the implications of having somebody of Jesus' fame and stature in the community come and eat dinner with him at his table. Simon caters this massive feast, invites all of the leading politicians and political officials of the day. He he spares no expense bringing all of the decorations in and, and lining up this big, important, special dinner. And he's got Jesus coming to his house. And I wanna ask him when I read the text, what good is it? that you can invite Jesus to your house? What good is it that you can afford this massive meal? What good is it that you've got God in the flesh sitting at your table when your religion stops you from appreciating the Jesus you have access to? And Simon is so enamored with all of the implications of having this important dinner, so excited and all caught up about it, You know how you get when you know you're going to be meeting with somebody important? He's all nervous. He's checking every detail. He's making sure all of the linens are beautifully setting out his little copy of the Ten Commandments. He's got all the candlesticks lit. He's got all the, the, the musicians in the other room playing music quietly. He wants to set this perfect, sanctimonious, religious, auspicious environment. And he gets so caught up in all those details that when Jesus walks in, He forgets to give him some water to wash his feet. Maybe it's worse than that. Maybe it's worse than he forgot. Maybe Simon's too blessed to be appreciative. Maybe he's too important in his own mind to be thankful for the presence of the Lord. Maybe he thinks he's doing God a favor by showing up and putting on this dinner. Like some folks today think that God ought to just be happy you got out of the bed and drove to church. Think that God ought to be satisfied with whatever level of praise you give or don't give, with whatever offering you give or don't give. You think you're doing God a solid just by coming here. The God, incidentally, that kept your heart beating all last night while you were asleep. The God, incidentally, who keeps your brain operating and keeps your mind bright. The God, incidentally, who made your kneecaps and causes them to operate but we give him what we, went to, what we want to, how we want to, when we want to, if we want to, because some people in their own minds are more important than God himself. Dinner starts. Can you imagine how stuffy this room was? This room full of all these important people tr- trying to be seen. Trying, you know, just being seen at the table, just being seen standing in the corner was going to raise your stock in the community. And they're all there in this religious environment. 
and they, they sit down. Table service is about to start. The heart players are in the other room setting the mood and the atmosphere for their wonderful religious dinner. And into this environment comes a slut. Everybody knew that she was the town whore. Nobody would admit how they knew. Because, see, not only were Pharisees and religious people, not only were they not supposed to do certain things, they weren't even supposed to go certain places. So when she walks in, can you imagine the freak-out mode that hit Simon? What is she doing here? Now, a Pharisee has dedicated their lives to outward appropriateness, steeped in the laws of Moses and the legalities of the Torah. They approached God. Their paradigm was through the lens of legalism. They believed the more outwardly moral you were, the more rules you followed, the more sanctimonious and holy you were, the closer you were to God. And they were disciplined people. They were moral people. They were clean people. They didn't go certain places. They didn't do certain things. They didn't talk a certain way. And you would think that if God were going to be seen with anybody, it would be appropriate for him to be seen with a Pharisee, but not the town whore. Simon's wondering, how'd she get in anyway? What idiot servant left the door open? What pole did she hop off of before she ran up in here? Who do you think you are in my house, in this house? You ain't going to bring your mess into this house. You are not welcome here. And sometimes it's so hard to get to God because of his people. I told him one day, I said, Lord, I really love you. It's your kids I can't stand. You ever really love somebody, like a friend or something, but you hated their kids? <laughs> and every time, like, you want to hang out with them, they bring their kids, and, like, you stopped accepting the invitation. You love them. You just can't stand their brats, you know? She walks in. And I, I think about it. I think about what, what must have been going on in her mind that she pushed past the resistance that she knew would be in the room. You ever been in a room where you could feel that people didn't want you there? I don't know about you. I don't like going anywhere where people don't want me. I mean, you don't want me in the room with you? I got plenty of other things. <laughs> Let me assure you. I got plenty of other things I can be doing. But, but something about this woman really wanted to get to Jesus. So she walks into this room greeted by their scowls and their whispers, and timidly she makes her way over to Jesus. And she knows she doesn't belong in the room. She knows she's being talked about and ridiculed. But she's not there to see any of the people judging her. She's there to see somebody else. Verse 38, watch her motives. Watch her motives. A lot of times people would break into rooms like this to get to Jesus because they really needed something. You remember the Syrophoenician woman. She broke into a room like this, but it was because her daughter was grievously vexed with a demon, and she wanted Jesus to heal her daughter. You remember the centurion that interrupted Jesus and sent men and said, I need you to come and heal my servant. You remember the man whose son kept throwing himself in the fire and the water, and they interrupted Jesus because there was a massive need with their child. You remember blind Bartimaeus interrupting Jesus as he was going to a meeting saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But it's because he was blind and he wanted to be healed. But this woman doesn't come in this room to ask for anything. This woman doesn't come in this room to try to get anything. Look at what she does. Verse 38. She stood at his feet behind him, weeping. She doesn't seek his face. 
Proverbs says, in the light of a king's countenance, there's favor. But she doesn't seek his face. She don't want his favor. She doesn't seek his hand. The hand of a king is where the blessing is appropriated. She's not trying to get a blessing. What does she do? She seeks out the part of him that has been ignored by all the religious people in the room. She goes straight for the feet. She goes in and she says, Jesus, you mean you're in this room and they didn't give you no water for your feet? You mean you're here, Lord, and nobody washed your feet? So she positions herself at the place where he has been ignored. See, this is what a, a true lover will do. If you want to be a great lover for your wife or a great lover for your husband or a great lover for your children, if you want to be somebody who is excellent at loving, great at loving, position yourself at the place in their life that's been ignored by everybody else. So she positions herself at the place everyone has ignored. And I can imagine in my mind that she looks up at Simon and she says, can I please have some water to wash the Lord's feet? And I imagine he looks back at her and says, I ain't giving you nothing. So in absence of any water, since they won't give her any water, she says, it's all right. I'll make my own. And she begins to worship him with her weeping. She begins to weep over his feet. As she's weeping, she's remembering. See, I told you the Bible always tells us to remember because it's so easy to forget. There's something about us in human nature. It's so easy to get calloused and hard and cold to the beautiful things God has done for us. He said in the book of Revelation, he said, I have something against you. You've left your first love. He said, remember wherefore from which you have fallen and repent. And we have to be charged and challenged to remember or else we'll go through life with a hardened heart, distant and aloof to the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of God. So the prostitute falls down at his feet and she starts to weep and her weeping provides the water for his neglected feet to be washed. She's weeping over her story. She's weeping over his grace. She's weeping over all that he had done for her in her life. She peels the callus and the blisters off of her heart and lets the dam break. And as the dam breaks in her soul, the overflow happens in her eyes and she begins to weep over her history with God. How merciful God has been to her. How gracious God has been to her. All of the ways God had saved her. When was the last time you wept over what he's done for you? When was the last time you let your eyes leak out for all of the goodness and mercy and kindness of God? And she's weeping over the process. See, we never, we never talk about the process. Church is so full of a bunch of liars in the pulpit, sometimes on purpose and then sometimes, you know, with good motives, but just ignorant as a doorknob. And and we have presented to people a falsehood that you come to God, you know, you come to an altar, you pray a prayer, and you leave all clean and fixed up. You know, you've been a drug addict for 39 and a half years. You come to one altar call, you walk out, you never have the feeling or the urge for drugs again. It's amazing. It's magic. No, it doesn't work like that. Walking with God is a process. 
walking with God, God has to lead you through some things and mature you through some things and stay with you while you grow and while you stumble and while you learn to develop righteous character and while you learn to be forgiving and how you, how you learn to be generous instead of stingy, how you, how you learn to start being kind to people when they're ugly in your faith. You have to learn these things. It is a process. And as she kneels down, she's remembering her process, all of the many steps along the way and how she wasn't good when he found her, how she wasn't good when she first believed, how she wasn't good when she became a Christian, how she wasn't good when she started going to church. But he never left her in the process and gave her the space and grace to grow. See, I see you looking at me like you didn't need no space and grace to grow. But we got a room full of sinners looking up at the preacher. And you got a preacher that's a sinner looking out at the people. And the one thing we all have in common is that he gave us the grace and the space to grow. That he never left us in our process. That even when we knew to do better but didn't have the discipline or the effectiveness or the strength in our spiritual legs to walk right, God was there with the space and the grace. But don't we forget, you mature a little bit, you grow a little, you learn a few scriptures, you, you stop doing some crazy things, and you know, some of you stop doing crazy things because you got too old to do them. I don't go to the club no more and drop it like it's hot, thank you Jesus. You can't drop it like it's hot no more. If you dropped it, you wouldn't be able to pick it back up again. Don't stand in here and perpetrate like you some sanctified holy woman. You just ain't got no opportunities anymore. I ain't never been promiscuous. Nobody wanted to be promiscuous with you. Sit there and smile at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. I don't care about none of it. She's, she's thanking him over her process. And, and, and the reality is, like, hadn't you been crazy? This whole section just completely left me out when I said that. Y'all better get real with me. I'm about to prophesy. <laughs> Hadn't you been crazy? Yeah. Hadn't we all been crazy? Yeah. And when you think about the journey, every now and then it ought to make you cry. When you think about your story, every now and then it ought to cause some moisture in your eye. When you think about his goodness and his kindness and his love. How he didn't let people take you out when you were too vulnerable to defend yourself. How he kept picking you up over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. When you think about it every now and then it ought to provoke you. So it's amazing to me she's standing, Pastor John, in this room. You ain't got no water? Sitting there, my Lord, my God, the one that saved me, the one that healed me. You mean to tell me they didn't give you no water? No moisture in this dead, dry room? That's all right, Jesus. I got you. And she starts watering him herself. I thought it was interesting. In the scripture, water is always a type of worship. Jesus said, when you believe on me, as the scriptures have said, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. So as she worships him, her worship literally begins to water him. When you worship him today, your worship still 
waters. Yeah. That's why the enemy hates worship, because Jesus said demons love dry places. Demons run rampant in dry places. But when you lift up your hands, open up your mouth, and turn the water on, when you let the water of your worship and your praise begin to flow, not only are you watering Jesus, but you're chasing every devil out of your region. You're chasing every devil out of your church. You're chasing every devil out of your house. You're chasing every devil out of your children's lives. You're chasing devils. You're chasing demonic spirits. Every time you worship, there's water. So she waters him. Gets all the mud off his feet, all the dirt. Can you see that in your mind? You know how much tears you would have to produce to be able to adequately wash somebody's feet with your tears? And when she gets done, I imagine in my mind that she looks up to Simon, eyes all red, face all puffy. She looks up to Simon and she says, can I please have a towel to wipe the Lord's feet off? Ho, I ain't giving you nothing. That's all right, Jesus. I got you. And she lets down her hair. Now, when she let down her hair, everybody got more mad at her than you did at me when I said the word ho. I'm not trying to offend you. Well, maybe a little bit. Because I want you to get the sense of how offensive her presence was in the room. And without offending you a little bit, I can't put you in the text. And most of y'all ain't offended anyway. You said worse in your house this morning than what I just said in here. So look at me crazy if you want to. I'm coming, mama. I'm coming. So uh, she takes down her hair. Now, in Jewish custom, and if you don't believe me, you need to study this. It's crazy. In Jewish custom, it was the highest insult that a woman could bring on herself to take down her hair. You know, in the Middle Eastern world, they got some crazy customs. You know, they, they, got, um, they got these people that, that have to wear this stupid hajib over their head when they go into certain places. And if you're mad that I said it's stupid, there's four exits on either side of the building. That foolishness is stupid. But, but anyway, she, um, she's not supposed to take her hair down. You're not supposed to expose it to a man. The only time a woman was allowed to take her hair down was in private with her husband because it was an outward pantomime. It was an outward contract. It was an outward sign. When you took down your hair in front of a woman, and ladies, don't get mad at me, history has not always been kind to women. Okay? Bible history has not always been kind to women. Women weren't allowed to vote in the Bible. They were seen as second-class citizens. They were seen as properties, something to be used. And that, that part about not being allowed to take down your hair, that went all along with that mindset. Okay. And it was a backwards, bad mindset, but it, that's what it was. So when you let down your hair in front of a man, you were saying, use me. Here I am, head to toe. Use my body. Use my life. I belong to you. I'm your property. Use me. So when she takes down her hair in front of Jesus... That's the sign of harlotry. A good woman, an honorable woman, would never take down her hair. It was, it was the way a woman was saying, I'm going all out. I'm sold out. I'm sold to you. I'm your property. Use me however you want to. Use me up. Use me for your pleasure. Use me for your purpose. Use me however you want to use me. She let down her hair. The room gasped and stepped back when she did it. 
They're ready to stone her because it was a stonable offense. Letting your hair down in front of a priest like Jesus. But she had let her hair down for so many other men. She had let her hair down for so many other people who used her and then forsook her. Who took everything she had and then left without ever a second thought. That when she saw Jesus sitting there, she said, if there was ever somebody worth me giving myself to. If there was ever worth somebody worth me bowing down in front of them and saying, use me. Use me up. I finally found somebody who was worth me selling myself to and selling out to and, and giving to. And you know what? I thought about it. We've all done that one way or another. We've sold ourselves out to people who say they'll love us and then forget us in a second. We've sold ourselves out to companies and corporations, given all of our time, all of our effort, all of our energy, just to get a pink slip in the mail. We've sold ourselves out to friends and family because those are the ones that are supposed to be there for you. And when you didn't have it, you put yourself on the line for people who said they loved you and said you were family. And then when you were in need, they forgot about you. And I wonder, why do we sell ourselves out for all of these people and we won't sell out for him? Why do we scream at basketball games and football games, but we won't come and scream for him? Why do we spend money on cars and clothes and televisions and couches, but we won't bring a large offering to him? Why do we sell out for love and romantic relationships, take ourselves to ridiculous extremes, only to get disappointed and heartbroken, but we'll never give that same energy and love to him? The woman was so wise, she said, I finally found the one that was worth me selling it all for. Here I am, use me. Use my tears to wash your feet off. Use my hair as your washcloth. Use my body. Use my life. Use my soul. Use my all. You can use me. And you know, being used can be a beautiful thing if you're being used by the right one. Oh, you don't hear what I'm saying. I said being used can be a beautiful thing if you're being used by the right one. And I want to tell somebody who's been all used up by people, you need to meet the lover of your soul. You need to evolve from religion into a relationship and let Jesus use you. Let Jesus love you. Let Jesus change your life. Let Jesus have it. Down at his feet she falls. And she begins to praise him in a conflicted atmosphere. It's easy to praise God when everybody else is praising God. But it's hard to praise God in a room where you are hated, in a room where you are not wanted, in a room where everybody's talking about you. In fact, it's enough to make you back up and run away. But something in this woman said, Jesus, you are so worthy. I can't pass up this opportunity to bow in your presence and give you the praise of my life. And she praises him. And she praises him. And she praises him. And then she takes out her oil. Her alabaster box. She doesn't open it. Because anything that can be opened can be closed. She breaks it. And starts pouring it on his head. And didn't stop until his head, his beard, his torso, his legs and hips, his knees and his shins and even his feet were covered in the costly oil. She gave more than was necessary. She gave a ridiculous amount. And she didn't give it out of need. 
She didn't give it asking for something back. She gave it because she remembered. How long has it been since you remembered? Have you tied into and connected at least once a year? Do you connect? with the beauty of your salvation, with the joy of your redemption in Christ. While she's remembering and worshiping, Simon gets an attitude and he starts talking to himself. Verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, watch his words, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, notice something about religious people. They always assume they have God's heart on the matter. Like, you're so wise. You're so smart. You've learned so much that you know, sitting where you are, how God feels about it. And he questions Jesus' discernment. He questions Jesus' authenticity. If you were really a prophet, if you knew what kind of woman that was, you wouldn't let her touch you. You wouldn't let her praise you. You wouldn't let her anoint you. She's a sinner, and we all know it, and you should know it. So Jesus, who hears his thoughts, Jesus said, oh, you want to see if I'm a prophet? Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon don't know Jesus has heard his thoughts. So he says real confidently, say it, teacher, in my wonderful dinner party that I have established. Go ahead and say it to me. Honor me with your conversation. Let's get something started. Let's ignore this little floozy. Get a real conversation started. I got something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, say it. Verse 41. There's a certain creditor. He had two debtors. There were let me start paraphrasing. I'll leave the text just for a minute. It was two, it was two people that owed a bank different sums. One of them owed $5,000. One of them owed $500. And the enforcer of the debt came to collect. When he came to them, both the debtors were in a situation where they couldn't pay. One owed a lot. One owed a little, but they were both still in debt. This is the problem I have with religious, sanctimonious, self-righteous people. If I'm in a lot of debt and you're just in a little debt, how are you going to act like you're better than me? Guess what? We're still in debt. Jesus painting a picture for Simon. Simon, she's in a lot of debt. You're in a little debt. But you're in the same category. The crackhead who murdered somebody to get his fix, you may not like this, is in the same category as the person who told that lie to keep his job. And you try to justify yourself. You try to say whatever you need to say at night to help you sleep better. Bottom line, you're still in debt. They both owed. But the creditor forgave him. He just canceled the debt. He canceled the man who owed $5,000. He canceled his debt. And he canceled the man that owed $500. He just canceled his debt. But then Jesus turns to Simon and he said, let me ask you something. Which one of the debtors will love the creditor more? Simon said, well, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And Jesus said, you've rightly judged. And see, when you know 
you've been forgiven of so much. When you know the amount of debt you were in, nobody has to ask you to praise the Lord. But the problem with many of us, the problem with people that don't praise and that aren't emotional about God, that don't really care and love the Lord, the problem isn't that you weren't in a lot of debt. The problem is you didn't realize you were. The problem with so many people is at the core of your heart, you really think, I'm a good person. I mean, I just hit a wall when I said that because so many people in the seats, you feel that way. I'm a good person. No, all have sinned and come desperately, grossly short of the glory of God. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. You're a liar. The truth is not in you. John said that. But because we're not aware of our own wickedness, it causes us not to be thankful and love profusely and love to the extra mile. And I've been praying that God would increase the power of conviction and let us know just how broken we are so that we can be as thankful as we should be for the mercy that covers our brokenness, for the grace that forgives us of all of our transgressions, for the kindness and the goodness and the beauty and the mercy of God. You've been forgiven. You've done a lot of things. You said a lot of things. You spoke a lot of things. You planned a lot of evil. You executed a lot of negative things in your life. And yet, if you have trusted Jesus, you've been forgiven. From that abortion you had, you've been forgiven. all that stuff you stole from those people. You've been forgiven. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you, Jesus. For all those lies you told and that gossip you stirred up. Thank you, Jesus. And the relationships that were destroyed because of what you said that wasn't true. You've been forgiven. For all those negative seeds you planted and all that dirt you did. All that pornography you watched. You got drunk with that girl, and you did inappropriate things. And you hurt those people. When you misrepresented yourself, when you tore others down because you were so insecure and you wanted people to think better of you out of pride. You've been forgiven. The way you dishonored your parents and were disobedient. The way you've hurt your family. The way you borrowed that money and you promised you would pay it. You said, I'm a man of my word. I'm a woman of my word. Knowing in the back of your mind you were never going to give it back. They needed that money. Something came up and that money you took would have helped them. And they did it for you because they were counting on your character. But you were a snake and a sleaze and a, and a slob and a scumbag. And even that has been forgiven. Scandalous grace. Scandal, all that junk you shot in your veins. stuff you smoked and snorted and all of the residual pain your addictions and brokenness have caused you've been forgiven it ain't good it's bad but you've been forgiven you got married too early because you were selfish that woman in a terrible spot and you ain't been half a daddy having babies all over the place that you don't support because really the truth is you didn't want to go and get your education or go to work you've lazed your way through life but you've been forgiven 
And the truth is, maybe you're so bad and so filthy and so scandalous and so wrong that by this time in your life, nobody trusts you. Nobody can count on your word. And maybe nobody even wants to see you or be around you. Maybe you can't be in a crowd of family and friends without somebody bringing up the mess you've done or the trail of blood you've left. But there's one person who's always happy to see a sinner break into the room. There's one person that won't get up from the table. When you come with your sinful self and kneel down, there's one person who will let you pour your tears on his feet and try him with the hair of your head. There's one person that's always happy to see you. There's one person that poured out his very life for all of the mess and darkness and sin and filth that you committed. There's one person that still loves you. There's one person. And you ought to praise him. You ought to worship him. You ought to lift your hands. You ought to weep. You ought to cry. You ought to shout. You ought to pour your love on him. You ought to give him the water. There's too many dry people around you. You ought to give him the water. There's too many dry people in your family. You ought to give him the water. You ought to give him the water. You ought to give him the water. You ought to give him your water. Not my water, not Simon's water, not your neighbor's water. Your, your. That's what it sounds like to him when you lift up your voice. It sounds like a waterfall. It sounds like a waterfall. In Revelations, he said their voices sounded like the voices of many waters. That's what happens when you worship. You still water your God when you worship. Simon says, I, I suppose the one that has been forgiven more will love more. And Jesus said, yeah, when, when I came into your house, your religion blocked you from acting relational with me. You had a bunch of information, but you didn't want no relationship with me. You knew your Bible back and forth, but you didn't even so much as give me any water. You know how many people can quote their Bible forward and backward, but they come to church and they never praise. They never lift their hands. They never cry. They never weep. They never give God any water. He said, you didn't give me any worship. You didn't give me any water. You didn't give me any worship. You didn't give me any, any water. But this woman, she hasn't ceased to wash my feet with her tears. And then she used her hair as a washcloth. In other words, she allowed me, my body, to use hers. There's a lot of people, they'll never serve in the church. They'll never come give their physical gifts, their body to the church. They'll never come and volunteer. They'll never join. They'll never give of their body of their time of their effort they'll never lift a food box to give it to a family in need in the name of Jesus they'll never come and help set up anything they'll, they'll never come they'll never run a camera or run the sound or play an instrument or sing in the choir but, but he said this relational woman she let me use her body and then you didn't even give me a kiss that's what your praise and your shout and your hallelujah is to God. That's how he interprets it, as giving him a greeting. Hi, God. I love you, Lord. Here's a big kiss from earth. Mwah! That's what you do when you clap your hands. That's what you do when you shout. That's what you do when you sing. That's what you do when you cry. It's relational behavior. Oh, it's relational behavior. You didn't. 
you didn't give me a, you didn't give me a kiss. But she hadn't, she hadn't stopped. She, she hasn't ceased. That's, that's the thing about worshipers. They never stop. A true worshiper. Is, you got to stop a worshiper because a worshiper won't stop. I've seen, I've seen services at here at Christian World where I had to literally stop people and sit them down because a real worshiper won't stop. Once they start, once you get this engine running, once I start. <laughs> and the funny thing to me is, the funny thing to me is, is that Simon thinks, Simon thinks if Jesus knew what she was, he wouldn't want her. What Simon didn't realize is, Jesus knew the woman was coming before Simon ever sent the invitation. And in fact, Jesus wasn't in that room for all those deadhead religious people. He was in that room because he knew she was coming. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. him with reckless abandon that you forgot how to say to him use me use me up use me up anywhere you want me to go whatever you want me to do use me you want to use my hair as your watch cloth use me up but unfortunately this text in Luke doesn't really give us a lot of information about that alabaster box to get that we got to go to mark 14 so real quick we're about to leave just a couple more moments in his presence go to mark 14 verse 1 now those of you that track with me about resurrection seed you listen close this is crazy resurrection seed is always given during the season of passover I don't like calling it Easter. Easter is a pagan holiday that they adopted, and they've, they've put that over the name. But Jesus died during the Feast of Passover because he was our Passover lamb. And uh, it says in Mark 14, 1, it says, after two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You can come down on that plane. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they may take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the Passover feast, lest the people be in an uproar. Verse 3, and being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he was a Pharisee, but he had been a leper. As Jesus said at the table, a woman having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. See, the Luke text said that she poured it on his feet. You don't get it until you go to this Mark text and realize the reason it got on his feet was because she poured so much of it starting on his head, it flowed all the way down. Verse 4, but there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii to be given to the poor. 300 denarii was a year's wages. It was a year's wages. She came to Jesus during the Passover and she gave a year's wages to honor him. And I didn't see it, Pastor John, until last night about 3.30 in the morning. That was a resurrection seed. Want me to prove it? Do you want me to prove it? 
supernatural miracles are stirred up when you sow sacrificially into the kingdom of God. Do you want me to prove that it was a resurrection seed? Turn to John chapter 11, verse 1. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Next verse. It was that Mary. It was that Mary. Y'all don't know how to recognize pretty preaching when you see it. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with the fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. It was that Mary whose brother Lazarus was sick. If you go on to read the story, you'll find out that her brother died. But there is a seed that can bring dead things. Oh, I feel it. There is a seed that brought my boy's dead brain cells back to life. There is a seed that when God sees that kind of sacrifice, there is a seed. She poured out a year's wages during Passover. And it motivated Jesus to come up to the tomb of her dead brother and say, Lazarus, Now listen, be seated. I don't know how much he means to you. I don't know how far back your story goes. I don't know what you're dealing with in your life. But I didn't come to give you a sermon. I came to give you that which I have received from the Lord that has changed my life. If you will start tomorrow, for the next five weeks, if you'll put one day's salary in that envelope I've passed out for five weeks, and you'll pray over it, and you'll weep over it, and you'll thank God for his mercy, and you'll thank God for your salvation, and you'll ask God to show you again to make anew for you again the joy of your salvation and you'll put that seed in there and then you'll come in here on Good Friday or Passover Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning as the world calls it and you'll sow that resurrection seed. Watch the miracles that break out in your life as a result of it. If you, if you hadn't wadded that envelope up and thrown it somewhere, hold it up. Father, right now in the name of Jesus, I pray over these. I pray over your people. I pray over their seed. I pray over those who say that, God, I don't have that. There's no way I can do that. Your word says you give seed to the sower. So, Lord, I'm praying that some kind of way supernaturally you cause the seed to come in. I pray some kind of way supernaturally you give them the ability to bring you an offering of a week's salary on Easter to honor you for your sacrifice and your love for us. I pray that you bless them over these next five weeks with more than enough so that they can be a blessing to your body, the body of Jesus Christ, which is the church, with their offering of a resurrection seed. In Jesus' name. Stand to your feet, lift up your hands, give the Lord praise. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. you don't know the Lord in this beautiful relational way, I invite you to pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, help me step out of religion.
and into a relationship with you. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you were resurrected. And according with the book of Romans, chapter 10, your word says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus, I call on your name in faith. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me of my unrighteousness. And place your Holy Spirit in my life. I receive it now in Jesus' name. God bless you. I love you.